He says, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So not only is idolatry sin, but those who actually take their liberty to the extent where they're participating in idolatrous worship, they not only sin themselves, but they cause others, because of their close association with this evil practice, they cause others who are weak in the faith to stumble, and they're not caring for those around them. They're so focused on the freedom that they have that they're stepping all over those who are weaker and maybe come out of a a background where that's a real stumbling block for them. And so that's a problem in the church. So idolatry is sin, and close association with idolatry is sin to the extent that you will cause harm to other people. When we think about idolatry, I wonder when the last time in your prayer life you repented of the sin of idolatry. I think we don't often think about the sin of idolatry in spite of the fact that it is spoken of so frequently in Scripture. When we think of idolatry, we think of a metal statue with some incense burning in front of it. It's really no temptation for most of us. We think about a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai with Israelites dancing around, and that's something we think, well, we don't really do that Um, we have very little interest in that. Um, And we agree with the psalmist sort of almost mocking idolatry in Psalm 115 when he writes, but their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So idolatry seems foolish to us. It seems far removed from us, so much so that we don't think about it in our own personal lives. And yet we know that you can have idols of the heart. So what is idolatry? Could someone help us define idolatry? Anything that you put before God, that's right. Anything that you prize uh, to a level that is higher than it should be. Um, Martin Luther said, that to which your, your heart clings is your God. John Calvin said, every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. So at the outset of this message, I'd like to take just a minute to pause and allow each one of us to think about idols or ask God to examine our hearts and say, what is it that I'm prizing more than I ought to? It may be something that is even good in itself. Marriage is a good thing. Uh, Engagement is a good thing. Singleness is a good thing. Uh, Freedom is a good thing. Um, It could be something evil. Um, But... Let's just take a moment, and I just want to take just a minute where we pause and bow our heads, and each one of us just pray, Lord, show me what it is. could be something sinful. could be something that you uh, 
are coveting, or it could be something uh, like a material thing that you are prizing more than you ought to. And just take a moment and say, Lord, show me the idols that I'm worshiping. So let's just do that at the outset here. Amen. I'm going to move on, but before I do, are there any questions? I saw a hand over here. Yes. Sure, and I think it's a continual struggle. The question is, what if you're gifted by God to do something and you do that and then yet your heart then struggles with uh, loving that or prizing that more than you ought to? Is that the question? Yeah, but in order to be good at it, you have to think about it all the time. Right. So we're not saying that you cannot pursue it and have excellence, but I don't believe that is true, that in order to be good at it, you have to think about it all the time. Because if you have to think about it all the time and it's crowding out God, then actually it's not something you should be participating in. Perhaps it's something you should step back from. Because ultimately, we're talking about priorities here. No, I don't believe that he does. Well, so, yeah, so he spends, uh, since early on in his ministry, he spends about 30 hours a week preparing. That's for two messages right. pretty much every week. So the more you think about whatever it is, thinking about it. So let's take the example, let's take the example of preaching, because that's something that I'm familiar with, all right? And I also spend many hours each week studying for this message here, um, you know, I've invested more than 15 hours, not all this week, because I preached this passage before, but I've spent close to 10 hours this week on this passage, and I've already preached it. I already had it manuscripted. I already studied it, but I wanted to restudy it. But let me tell you something. Why am I doing that? What's my heart motive? This is what we're getting at. A preacher can preach God's word but if he's doing it for his own glory or for his own to be puffed up or to be looked at or for people to say, wow, and everybody struggles with pride. And so what is your motive for doing it? Uh, ultimately, God enabled me to be here this morning. God has enabled me 
to preach his word. And my heart's prayer is that this will be for his name's sake and for his glory alone. And whether you're an Olympic athlete or whether you're, um, you know, a, a, an actor or a, a, um, a mechanic, whatever you're doing, you do all to the glory of God. That's it. Daily. This is why I think it's a good challenge for us to look at idolatry specifically and to challenge our hearts and say, when was the last time I actually repented of idolatry? Now, if I haven't answered your question completely, I'll I'll take it more at the end. Hopefully we'll have time at the end, uh, and we'll look at it again. But I think part of looking at this passage will help us to see why idolatry is to be avoided and how dangerous it is. Yeah? So the, the question is, what about pleasures? And I, I think that, um, you know, a short answer for that, and we're, we're going to get into this a little bit more as we look to this passage, but uh, ultimately we're doing all for the glory of God, and we're, we want to do what is pleasing to him. If you're really going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, then what pleases him will bring you the most pleasure. It's... Uh, uh, God is most satisfied. We, we are most, uh, God, is most, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, John Piper, Christian hedonism. So this idea that we find the greatest joy in this life when we're most, most satisfied in him, and he is most glorified in us when our satisfaction rests in him no matter what's going on. And so what we're trying to get at this morning are those things that really compete with where our affection lies for him. You, you can love your family and cherish them, and you should, but to the glory of God. And when you start to love your family more than you love God, that's when idolatry is really gripping you. Okay? And it could be something like your family. It could be something like alcohol. It could be something... Uh, you know, that, that is, it could be something like pornography. It could be an idol in your heart, something that is inherently wicked and evil. It could be something that is designed by God for its place. Okay, so when we're, when we're looking at um, uh, idols, here's, here's another thing, and this, this, is, this would be a good passage to read, I think, to help tie this together. But Job... Um, wrote about idolatry, and he said, if I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon glowing, going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth. So he's talking about materialism, possessions, gold, silver, but even nature, whatever he's looking at, he says, that too would be an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. And essentially, idolatry, what makes it such an appalling sin to God is because you decrease your loyalty and trust in God. And 
you assume that God is something other than he really is. It's a lack of trust in God. Idolatry represents a lack of trust in God. It, it, it maintains an erroneous view of God. It, um, it, and God is a jealous God. He will not share the affection and praise that is due him with another. We know this. Isaiah 48, 11, I will not give my glory to another. Exodus 34, 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. D.L. Moody said, you don't have to go to heathen lands to find false gods. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. And so we, we look at our hearts. I don't think it's very difficult to see where our priorities go wrong. If you really sit and contemplate, I think every one of us can find several in a short amount of time of attractions from this world that draw us away from God. That's what we're talking about. Now, once you've dealt with those and you're having a tough time finding more, then let's talk about it. But uh, I really think that when we're looking at this passage, we have to associate it with what's going on in our own lives, and we have to say, okay, this isn't something so far removed from me. But as we look at this passage, verses 14 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 10, what I want to point out here, what, I, what we should see from this passage is four reasons why followers of Christ need to be careful about their association with evil. Four reasons why we need to be very careful about idolatry or even association with evil idolatry. So, Number one, association with evil is dangerous. Association with evil is dangerous. Now, we know from verse 13 that it can be avoided, right? That's such a beautiful verse. We looked at that last time we were together in 1 Corinthians. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape. And so there's this idea that you can escape. And he jumps right into it. So escape, flee from idolatry. Um, I speak as to wise men, verse 15. You judge what I say. So as we look at this, we have this idea that, uh, beginning in verse 14, the word therefore, that therefore, because it can be avoided, avoid it. Because you can escape it, flee. Flee from idolatry. I love it that he says, beloved, assuring his love for them. But before he even explains why it's dangerous, he says, get away from it. Like a child wandering near a fire, you just the first thing you do is say, no, don't touch. And you, you grab them and pull them away. And then you explain to them why it's so dangerous. This is like how Paul is responding when it comes to the church and idolatry. He says also in verse 15, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. He's not being sarcastic here. He's, he's pointing out to the fact that this makes sense. You're sensible people. Um, so, and, and they had written to him about this specifically. Back in chapter 7, verse 1, he begins with, now concerning the things about which you wrote to me. And uh, in chapter 8, he says, now concerning things offered to idols. So he's still trying to answer their question. And so he's calling them to flee from idolatry. And I, I think it's just that command, flee from idolatry, that imperative there shows us 
that, hey, anytime you're close to it, run from it, because it's dangerous. Just the way he writes it, the order of it, I don't think that's a difficult point to understand, so I want to move on to the second one. So the, the, the first reason is that it's dangerous. Association with evil is dangerous. The second reason why Christians should stay as far away as possible from idolatry is because association with evil reveals your devotion. It reveals what you're really devoted to, where your heart's affection lies. Um, and he gives two illustrations here, one from Israel and one from the church. The one with churches with communion, the one with uh, Israel is the sacrificial system. Take a look at verses 16 through 18 in 1 Corinthians 10. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices sharers in the altar? So we look first of all, and he talks about communion. And what's interesting about this is that this is a great, gives us a lot of great insight to communion, and we learn about a lot about communion from these verses. And a lot of people come to this and also a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that teach us a lot about communion, which we practice today. And we'll be pointing some of that out, but really remember that the emphasis here is on fleeing idolatry. And he uses this merely as an illustration, or primarily as an illustration. When he's talking about communion, he starts out with the cup of blessing, which is interesting because uh, we practice it with the, the bread first. In 1 Corinthians 11, our Lord practiced it with the bread first, the bread and then the cup. He starts with the cup, uh, probably not, not trying to give any kind of order here, but I think he really wants to emphasize what the bread represents. Um, and so he puts that second. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? At the Passover feast in which our Lord was celebrating with his disciples, there were three cups during that feast and that, that were, had a symbolic meaning, all having to deal with deliverance from slavery in Egypt. That's why they celebrated the Passover when the angel of death passed over the homes that had the blood of lambs on the doorposts and every firstborn in Egypt died and yet the Israelites uh, did not have their firstborn die, but they were able to escape. It was the 10th plague. It was, a, it was the victory of the Exodus, and it was a time of praise. And so that the word blessing can also mean praise. It was a praise to God cup, the cup of blessing, praise for deliverance from evil, it was from, from uh, that slavery. And it was that third cup in the Passover feast, the cup of blessing. And... Um, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, according to Mark 14, 24, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. So he actually changed the imagery and the symbolism of what the cup was supposed to remind them of. He took the cup at a Passover celebration with his disciples, and he actually said, this cup represents my blood. That didn't actually become his blood. That would have been appalling to Jews. It's amazing that the Catholics could think that uh, transubstantiation, that the cup actually turns to blood when it enters your mouth. Because if Jesus were teaching that, Jews would have been horrified at that. And you only have to read about the first century in the book of Acts and how they responded to, to uh, meat where the blood hadn't even been drained out of. And how they responded to um, 
blood and, and certain foods that were unclean. But Christ said, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What is the significance of the blood of Christ? Why was that significant? What was he trying to symbolize there? Life? Washing away of sins. What washes away your sins? The sacrifice. And the sacrifice really was death. It really was. The blood is actually a metonym. Um, we, we talk about synonyms. We talk about antonyms. We talk about metonyms. We talk about, I don't remember English. But a, a, a metonym uh, is a word that we use that, that is associated with it but it kind of replaces it. If somebody said, yeah, I made all my money on Wall Street, he doesn't actually mean that he went to New York City. Uh, he's talking about the New York Stock Exchange, and it's a metonym. It's a word that we use. Somebody says, uh, oh, he's big into Silicon Valley. They mean the tech industry. Uh, we use words that are associated with things. Um, somebody said, uh, hey, last night I was reading Shakespeare. They don't mean they literally dug up Shakespeare's bones and were like trying to read the DNA behind them or something like that. It's, it's a metonym. It's a figure of speech. I was reading some of the works of Shakespeare, if, if, if that's what... That's, we understand those things, right? When Jesus said, this is my blood, he was talking about the symbolism of death. Of death. He's saying, you are to think of me dying when you see this cup. It's the sacrifice, the sacrificial death. It's not as though Christ could have taken a a syringe and withdrawn some of his blood and sprinkled that on the disciples and that would have done anything. He's using it symbolically to speak of his death. That he would shed his blood but not just give his blood or donate his blood, that he would die. This is what he's talking about. This is what we remember. Do this in remembrance of me. He's taking something that symbolized deliverance from slavery in Egypt, and he's talking about his own death on the cross, which represents deliverance from slavery to sin and the freedom that we have in Christ. And that's why we drink the cup. When we come to the bread... The bread represents what? His body. And what is Christ's body? The church. Sometimes people will talk about the the bread representing his life. Uh, I'm the bread of life. Um, uh, And I think that there's an associated with it. Also, the, the, the body of Christ lives today. The church is the body of Christ. We are active. But if you take a look at verse 17, there's something interesting here about um, the, the, the way it's structured. It seems like it's, it's somewhat of a chiastic structure where we have parallel structures on the, outs, on the beginning and the end, and they narrow down towards and focus towards the middle of the verse. Um, the, the beginning of the verse 17 says, since there is one bread, and the end of the verse says, of the one bread. The second line of the verse says, we who are many, and the, the fourth line says, for we all partake. But that middle line says, are one body. And what he's talking about, he's saying, if when we take communion and we think of the bread, 
we're not only thinking about Christ and his life and his sacrifice and his death, but we're also thinking about the body of Christ, which is why we call it communion. It is those that we are communing with because we are all a part of his body, and there is a unity. And so when we talk about the body of Christ, when we celebrate communion, we're doing it in a way where we celebrate not only his death and sacrifice, but remember that we are with others that we partner with, that we fellowship with, that we koinonia with. And that word is used more than once in our passage. Um, uh, It's partnership is what the word means, sometimes translated as fellowship. But um, we have this idea of um, partaking of the bread, um, the sharing in the blood, that word sharing in verse 16, koinonia. We have this fellowship. And koinonia means much more than just uh, coffee and donuts. It, it, koinonia is this idea of a real partnership, a band of brotherhood, a band of sisterhood, a, 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 a family that we are all participating and contributing into the same effort and also experience the same benefits. So when we think about this unity, we're coming here and in this very verse, which helps us so much with communion, we have a remembrance of not only the sacrifice and our relationship with God above, but the sacrifice for the brothers and sisters who are with us and our relationship with them next to us, on either side of us. It really is a a time where we come together as a body. You're not only associated with Christ, but you are associated with one another. And that's his point here, is that you're devoted to one another. And there should be an extreme devotion to one another, which is why you can't live stream church and really be gathered, because you're not really fellowshipping with one another. You're not really associating yourself with one another. The whole point here is that idolatry not only harms you, but it harms others because it causes them to stumble, and you don't care about them, and they are the body of Christ, therefore you don't care about Christ. Idolatry is an offense to God because it shows that your heart's affections and desires and devotions are not in what matters. And so we see that danger. Second illustration also reveals a a devotion that's not right. Verse 18, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Deuteronomy 14 describes the duties of the average um, Israelite family, which was that they came together in a sacrificial system. If you lived close, you would take the first fruits of your crops or the first fruits of your animals from that year, and, and you would sacrifice them. And uh, if you live far away, you would sell those first fruits, bring the money, and then purchase those first fruits near Jerusalem, where then those, those, uh, the, the sacrifices that you purchased would be then sacrificed on your behalf. But it also involved a feast afterwards, a celebration that a sacrifice which also symbolized a covering over of sin and a getting right with God. And it was done together in worship. And so association with evil is dangerous, but it also exposes your devotion, reveals your devotion. And he uses that, he teaches that with those two illustrations. And that devotion has that relationship not only with God, but with those around you. And this all kind of builds up to the next reason why idolatry is so dangerous is because association with evil is incompatible with Christianity. 
It's not only dangerous, it not only reveals your devotion, but it is incompatible with Christianity. Verses 19 through 21, take a look at them. They say, what do I mean then? That a sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So to drive home his point here, Paul goes back to the original argument that some of them were bringing to him. They were arguing that eating meals sacrificed to an idol is okay because an idol is nothing. It's just a piece of metal. It's not real. And therefore, I've got the freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols. While others are saying, um, you know, uh, uh, hey, I was, used to be in that whole system, and man, you, you, you going to that temple and celebrating and eating that just drives me into that. It, it repulses me, and I can't even associate with you because of what you're doing. And so Paul writes to them, and he says, it's true, he affirms what he taught before, that an idol is nothing. That's why he writes in verse 19, what do I mean then? Am I saying that an idol is something? He's reaffirming, no, an idol is nothing, right? A thing sacrificed to an idol is anything, or is an idol anything? No, verse 20 he says. But then he goes on to explain to verse 20, I say that the things that which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to be sharers in demons. And now he gets to the point where anything that is the worship of idols, even though an idol may not be something real, it's not a god, there is no other god, but every idol that is put up is associated with demonic activity. And it may be something as, as aggressive as an idol uh, which a demon attaches itself to and associates itself with, it may be something that according to the world system and the ruler of this age, according to Ephesians 2, who is Satan and his demons, influence and try and draw your heart away from, uh, from, from worshiping God. It could, it could be something as mundane as, as a car, I, I, I want to. Sh- I'll share these lyrics with you. Um, <laughs> this is a song from the 1980s, which was wow, a great era for um, songwriting. And um, here are the words from a 1980s rock band uh, from a song entitled "I Have a Car." And the words go: "This I have a car. I like it more than you. I have a car. I like to drive it too." I have a car, it takes me where I want. I have a car, that's all I want. Just a hint of idolatry there. It kind of comes through. This guy really likes his car. Um, The song goes on and on repeating that, and and at some point one of the singers yells out, a Cadillac! But um, so um, probably not the, the, I don't know. Anyway, so I'm not going to say anything about that. headed on a tangent. Um, But what we have to realize is that even changing our affection from God to a material possession like a car, that actually turns us away from God's designed system, uh, God's plan of 
reconciliation with the church where the church worships him above all else because he deserves it, and it falls into a demonic, satanic, worldly system which wants to appeal to your fleshly lusts and pull you away from God. Now, are demons behind every idol? What, 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 then how, what is behind it? Okay, your heart. I think that um, just to, I'll, I'll refer you, I think, to um, Dick Mayhew's book. He has a book on, um, on um, demonic involvement. Um, I actually have a lot that I can actually, uh, I, I think I'm going to save till next week. I don't, I don't want to rush through this. Um, no, I do. I'm going to go through this. We're going to go. <laughs> Because I want to get on the next passage, and I think we can talk more about this if we really want to. But let me give you four possibilities of how uh, mystical events or things that you can't explain um, is it is it always a demon? It, whether it's a healing in a in some sort of uh, cultic um, worship practice, or even a pseudo Christian worship. What is behind that? Well, there are four possibilities. One is it could be an exaggeration. Look, I lived in Africa for 19 years. I've heard all kinds of stories about witch doctors, about people being turned into hyenas after they died, the body turns back into a human, eyewitnesses telling me this, witchcraft helicopters, people being transported from one place to another. I've heard all the stories. There's a lot of superstition in Africa. And um, ultimately, some of it has to do with the fact that we all love stories. And sometimes they can never be verified. And the story just gets bigger and bigger. Well, I know someone. I'd love to meet that someone. And that someone has a lot of stories. Um, I never met that someone. But anyways, it could be a hoax. You can be sure that some idols are as fake as the Wizard of Oz. That um, people fake supernatural events all the time for money, fame. Um, I have a friend who went to a healer one time, a faith healer. And he, he literally had one leg shorter than the other. He put his leg up on the table. The guy in front of everybody had his two legs here and pulled his pant leg up and said, I can see his leg growing. <laughs> Apparently it looked like that. He said he just pulled my pant leg up. So there are charlatans out there. There's no doubting that. It could be exaggeration. could be a hoax. It could be a coincidence. Sometimes there's a departure of illness. Um, sometimes people are healed, for example, they think that they um, ate something or did something or somebody pronounced something and that healed them, but it could have been the body naturally fighting off that by God's grace. It could be that they were taking medication as well. It could be that God chose to heal them and um, it happened that they just chose not to give credit to God. But a fourth possibility is um, demonic involvement. And here's where I'll refer you to Dick Mayhew's book, The Healing Promise. Um, in that book, he says that um, Satan or demons do not possess creative power and cannot miraculously heal as God heals. Um, but there are several passages in Scripture which could lead us to, um, uh, which would support that statement, one of them being John 10, verse 21. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? 
Some people remember in John 10, we're accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. And they're saying, but demons can't make someone, you know, open their eyes. Um, and so we have all these different uh, possible... I mean, certainly a demon can is deceptive. There are demons. Um, demons are just fallen angels. There are legions of them. Satan is not omnipresent. Uh, he can't be everywhere at one time, but he has set this world on a course that is away from God, and his demons are active, influencing this world as he is. So... Uh, Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and of demons. And I think what we get at when we look at this passage is we have to realize that oftentimes we get caught up in battles that are just not battles that we should be devoting so much effort to. We're fighting against um, uh, politics. There's no... Nothing wrong with speaking out against politics that are against God. Uh, there's, we should be involved in our, in our local society. But when it comes to the extent that that consumes everything we're doing, we're fighting a battle with the wrong weapon. Ephesians 6, right? Our, 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 our battle is not with flesh and blood. And so if we're using the same kind of tactics and weapons that the world uses... And we're not using things like prayer and trusting in the sovereignty of God and committing to th- things to him and doing what the Spirit would have you do and reading the word of God. If we're not using those weapons, those Ephesians 6 weapons, and realizing that there's a whole strategy to divert you from worshiping God and showing other people who he really is, so that you're depressed and downcast and not living as a believer because you're upset about things that are peripheral, that are distractions, that are idols, instead of worshiping God, who is Lord. And that's what Paul is getting at here. It's dangerous because it's demonic. Fourthly, he talks about association with evil will not go unpunished. Not only is it dangerous, not only does it reveal your devotion, not only is it incompatible with Christianity, but it will not go unpunished. Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? The obvious answer to both these questions is no. Um, He's talking about this idea that do we think we're stronger than God? Listen, if you're a believer and you think you can participate in things that draw you away from the worship of him, and you won't receive consequences from that, you're sorely wrong. God disciplines those whom he loves. Hebrews 12 teaches us that. And so we need to be very careful about associating ourselves too closely with idolatry. We need to flee from it, to run from it. And if you're an unbeliever, and you think that getting caught up in the idols of your heart brings you the most satisfaction, you will be sorely punished you will experience God's wrath. And you need to repent today and turn and trust in him. Revelation 21.8 says, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, 
The murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the message of Paul is clear. Be careful about idolatry. I've tried to squeeze a lot in there, and we have a couple minutes left. Are there any questions? Yes. Yeah. So how do we as Christians flee from idolatry when some of the idols of our heart are good things? How do, we, how do we maintain the right balance there? Is that what you're saying? I think fellowship has a big part of this. There's a, there's a huge emphasis in this passage that you might not pick up on, on the, the body of Christ. This is why we have not only a fellowship group, but Bible studies. And this is why we should be doing life together. Doing life, that's a metonym, by the way. It doesn't mean like a prison term. Or it, means, it means like we should be living together. Uh, and so, so the idea that you should be having friendships with people that you worship and say, hey, listen, I've been thinking about my heart and my affections, and I'm concerned that I desire my glory more than God's glory. And it's happening in this area. Do you see this? Even still, will you pray with me? Will you help me? Will you hold me accountable? Um, and, and prayer, um, studying his word. Passages like this help us. One sermon is not a cure-all, but it's the daily nourishment from the word of God that helps remind ourselves, this is who he is, and this is who I am, and this is why I need to flee from the practice that my heart is so easily turning to. Is that helpful? One more question? All right, well, if you, yes. Uh, what are some practical tips to associate with evil people and to, to take advantage of them but not be caught up in it? Yeah, so what are some practical tips to associate with people uh, and evangelize them but not be caught up in their sin? I would say that your whole goal is to earn the right to choose the topic of conversation. Um, in the book Evangelism and Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer says, when you've earned the right to choose the topic of conversation, choose the topic of topics, Jesus Christ. And with some people, it may take five minutes on an airplane or a bus or somewhere to, to earn that right to talk about Christ. It might take you five weeks, five days, but take five months. If, if it's taking you five years to bring up Christ with somebody, you're going too slow. That's what I would say. So look at your relationships. Be intentional about them and be praying for opportunities to earn that right to bring up Jesus Christ and talk about the things that really matter. And the more you talk about them, either their hearts will be drawn to it or they will not want to spend time with you. So if they're content with spending time with you and, and you're talking about Christ, either you're not talking about him bold enough, boldly enough or, um, uh, or they're not hearing it. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time together in your word. Thank you for this great reminder from your word about our hearts and the affections of them and the dangers of our association with idolatry. 
help us to deal with these issues that we've identified earlier in this time and that we need to continue to identify and work on, that we might praise your name and glorify your name and see you for who you really are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.